All right, I got a little more time with Professor Gunkel. I call him D. Gunk. Uh, he is my guy at NIU, Northern Illinois University. And, you know, Professor Gunkel, we got to a lot of stuff. You know, we kind of flirted with the idea of robots having superior intelligence, of all-powerful AI. And I think, at least for this conversation about robot rights or moral obligations, I think we had to at least have some kind of um, you know, platform, at least we got to come in thinking that robots are going to be self-aware in some respect if they are to have rights as legal citizens or be considered liable for any damages that they may cause to human beings. Um, can we at least agree for that as kind of like a an entry point? No. Okay. How come? <laughs> so there's a reason for that. All right. Um, I think that bar is too high. Okay. I think that I think there may be a point at which that has to be crossed and, and addressed. But I think the questions regarding the moral and legal standing or status occurs way before that. And I'll just give you some examples to sort of flesh this out. We are in the position of entertaining the rights of animals without animals achieving this kind of human level consciousness or capabilities, et cetera, right? We can have a hearing uh, in a court of law for a habeas corpus uh, for um, a chimpanzee or an elephant. And or a bonobo, that, which are yeah, 98%. Or, yeah. Correct, right. Uh, but not just animals. We can do it for inanimate objects, right? I mean, right now in various parts of the world, rivers have the rights of a person. Uh, Lake Erie in the city of Toledo is considered a person. That is, I did not know that. I mean, I do know not to not to the grind an axe here, but corporations are considered people under this garbage Citizens United hearing. But that kind of goes with what you're saying. Correct. So we we are in the position, I think, prior to even talking about robots, of thinking about the moral and legal status of entities that are not human and that do not emulate anything near what we would expect of a human uh, individual. No, I, I guess I didn't really think about that. That is a great entry point. And I think that then that definition would apply to some robots. And I think, you know, it comes to this point where you mentioned in the book where when would something be a robot's fault? You know, when would they have a sufficient amount of computing and independent decisions, to, to independent power to make a decision? And I think one of probably the most controversial, not to go, not to, you know, hit it right out of the park right away, but a lot of these automated weapon systems, right? You've got the military running these automated right. systems where they're supposed to be a human in the loop and, you know, but I, I believe some have been given the power to kill, to discharge a weapon at a human being without a hu- without a human in the loop, and you know at that point I think you could say I don't actually I don't know what you would say in that situation. But what do you think about that? So we have the weapons. We also have the self-driving automobiles that oh, sure. strike yeah. and injure or even kill a pedestrian. Yeah, yeah. And the question in all these circumstances is okay. So who is it that is accountable? Who's responsible for the bad outcome. But I also think there's a flip side to this. What happens when you get an algorithmic composer who writes a really beautiful symphony? Who's the author? Who's responsible for the good outcome? Right? <laughs> right, yeah. And I think we're at a period of time right now where a lot of these, what we thought were really codified ideas, are being challenged by various artificial intelligences, algorithms, and robots that are beginning to challenge these expectations of how we assign 
accountability and responsibility uh, in matters that either something good happens or something bad happens. I think that's really interesting. I didn't think about the good and the bad. I mean, you know, it's it's you have this interesting question in the book where the, it's kind of the question of when does what become who? And mm-hmm. when do, you know, when do they have, I don't know if it's a certain number of human properties. You kind of mentioned the ability to suffer. When can a robot suffer? But I think that's a really interesting question. So what do you think, at least what's going on right now with current technology, is there anything out, is there any robots that are what's that can become who? Or what, where do you think we're kind of the closest with, with that question? Right. So this is important stuff because it relates to how we divide up our world into really two categories, into persons and things, who's and what's, right? And even our legal systems do this. Uh, in law, you have persons and you have property. And there's very little room in between those two things. It has to be decided that it is one thing or the other thing. This is why uh, various indigenous tribes and other uh, environmental groups have uh, petitioned for courts to recognize rivers as persons. It's not because they want to hold the river accountable for drowning a child. It's because they, it's because they want to protect yeah. the river from exploitation. Right. Yeah, yeah. And the only way to protect it in, in, in the face of the, of the, of the law is to get it declared something other than a piece of property. And so the only other option on the table is a person. So our legal ontology is really very binary, right? It's one or the other. Mm-hmm. And this who, what thing is part of that binary uh, decision. When does a who become a what? When do we cross that line? We crossed it in the past with animals, right? We were uh, talking in the previous podcast about how, you know, in the 19th and 18th centuries, we could feel pretty confident that animals didn't care and they were just mindless and we could just abuse them and, right. <laughs> you know, not worry about it, not lose sleep over it. And then, oops, we found out, no, that indeed animals do feel things and they right. have emotional lives and, yep. you know, they may be conscious in various ways and, oh, without, you know, so, okay, we got to fix that. So we, yeah. you know, move the animal out of the what into the who, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and the question becomes, okay, so when would a robot, you know, or an AI move from the what to the who. I don't think we're at that point just yet, but I do think we have various experiences in our world currently with social robots in particular where people feel as if this thing is a who and not a what. It's not just an instrument. It's not like a lawnmower or a toaster. It's more like a socially present other that we care about. Um, and you see this in a lot of the studies that have been done. There's these really crazy studies in the social sciences called robot abuse studies. And what? they've been okay. doing these for about a decade in which right. they will get human subjects together and they will show them videos of robots being burned or kicked or maimed or whatever. And then they will register the results of that impact on the human subjects. And they'll either talk about it in interviews or surveys, or they'll even do EKG and uh, MRI to see how the brain is responding. And it turns out that we as human beings don't respond any differently to a robot being abused than we do to an animal. In other words, robot abuse registers in our mind and in the way we think about it in the same way of seeing animal abuse. And therefore, we have experienced this, you know, individually, but we also see it when we do these studies with, you know, human subjects with these abuse studies. 
I did not know that. that I mean, that's pretty incredible. I, and I think it kind of, I do want to mention one thing. You know, when you talk about the what to who, you did make that mistake and you called AlphaGo a he. I mean, that's how easy Correct. it can be to do, right? I mean, that's how kind of quick that change can make, which would, you know, to make this animal analogy kind of extend it a little bit. I think if we're talking about when that line is crossed, you know, we talked about sex robots. Sex robots, in a way, are kind of like, I don't want to say a pet, right? But in some ways, we, if, if you, when you name, like, you know, when you live on a farm, you never want to name the animals because then you can't yeah. turn them into food, right? But once you've named an animal and just become a pet, you love them like you, they're a member of the family. And I think once that starts happening with robots, and the most obvious interaction would be sex robots, as we talked about earlier, highly advanced sex robots, I think then you start, at least in the minds of humans, Moving from a what to a who much more quickly. You mentioned, you know, not being just a tool. I think in those situations, it isn't just a tool. Uh, it's a, it becomes kind of, it at least has the characteristics in the person's mind of being a human. And I think those are, that's very an important distinction, I think. Yes, it is. And I think we see it, especially, um, if you look at what's happened with dogs, for instance. Um, a hundred years ago, a dog was considered a tool for working in the field or hunting or herding. Uh, today, if you own a dog, you're not even called a dog owner. You're called a pet parent, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And, and what's changed is, is the dog hasn't changed, right? It's the same animal. The evolutionary path of the dog has stayed pretty consistent. Yeah. But what's changed is us, right? Our social relationship to that animal has changed. Yeah. And I don't imagine it will be very different with various kinds of robotic objects, um, you know, we may initially experience them as being instruments that we utilize in the home for one thing or another, but living with them long enough, we may come to the point where we have a shift in the social status of that object with regards to our relationship with it, the same way that my relationship with my dog evolved. Right. You wouldn't be like a robot owner. It'd be like a bot brother or something like that. Is yeah, that something <laughs> We just don't have the terminology for it, right? I mean, we're going to have to invent all kinds of new euphemisms to be able to express what it is that the, these relationships are about. Right. No, I think that that's funny. And, and uh, my last question here, because I, this was my favorite part of the book, at least because I'm very uh, – I really get kind of caught up in rules. And, you know, that's kind of why law kind of interests me a little bit is – the rules and how people skirt around the rules, like Bill Belichick style, you know, like that's, I really enjoy that. And, and the self-driving car, you brought it up earlier. In the book, there's kind of a whole, you know, there's a whole section on how, like, when does this, who's responsible in a, in a self-driving car that if it crashes and kills a pedestrian, let's say, the ideas of who is responsible, you make some really interesting arguments and it kind of provides loopholes and opportunities for corporations, you know, like let's say an Uber or something who were, I guess I shouldn't name drop, but you know, but it makes loopholes for companies, large companies who are incorporating this, this technology to be able to kind of get away with allowing that to happen without being financially liable, liable for it. So tell me, how, how does that kind of work? Right. So this is something that I think we have to really be attentive to and pay attention to um, as these systems evolve and as the legal responses develop uh, with regards to things like self-driving cars. And you're exactly right. I mean, because these networks of responsibility get to be so convoluted um, with these technologies, it becomes very difficult to identify exactly who it is that can respond for something bad happening. Our word responsible means able to respond. Who is able to respond 
for the car striking a pedestrian. And you can already see with just the trials that have been done in the last five years, when there have been accidents, there's this kind of shell game as they kind of pass around the accountability question to see who's you know going to answer for what has uh, gone wrong. And if we allow for the corporations to run the decision-making here, you can pretty much guess what they're going to use it for as a way of insulating themselves from being accountable uh, for bad outcomes. And again, I think you can see how terms of service contracts could be utilized as a way of passing responsibility from the corporation to the owner of the vehicle or to some other party. And this is why I think keeping an eye on this is really crucial. And it's also why I think getting out in front of this before it becomes a problem is absolutely crucial. The only way you're going to be able to get traction on this is if government does something in advance to set up a regulatory environment that makes clear how responsibility is to be decided in matters of self-driving cars. But unfortunately or fortunately, depending on what side of the debate you're on, we live in a country that has a common law practice um, out of court cases. And if we allow court cases to be the place where this is decided and precedent to be established, um, the organization with the money and the well-paid lawyers may have an advantage um, in deciding how the legal system responds to these challenges. No, I think you're exactly right. And I, and I think the key to that goes back to what you were saying is like, when does a what become a who? When does, when is the car responsible for the death because of its AI? And when is a human responsible? And it requires a sufficiently advanced enough, um, AI to be able to operate independently, um, and to keep humans out of the loop. And, and I think that, that just the idea of being able to insulate yourself, you know, financially and legally is just, it's so wacky, but it's exactly the type of stuff that would happen, you know. And this is exactly, you know, this is exactly what we were saying earlier. This is how corporations became persons, hmm. right? Yeah. It was a way of, it was a way of insulating the shareholders yeah. from responsibility for bankruptcy or other kinds of things. Um, and, you know, that was a reasonable idea during you know the period of industrialization and you know in the early 20th century uh, but it has repercussions in how we think about our world today and obviously this is going to be another round of that and how we approach that question and how we decide it is going to have lasting consequences uh, for us and, and for you know our society no, I think so. I mean, these are, these are long, dense questions and you, you get to some of the great stuff. I mean, the, the book, again, it's invasion, uh, how to survive a, a robot invasion. And it talks about all this stuff and we just kind of scratch the surface. But I want to thank you so much for taking a little more time out for me today. This has been incredible. Yeah, no, it's been really fun. Thanks.